Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend Brittany Herman. And by way of introduction, we're going to be talking about sexual assault. Um, Brittany is a survivor of multiple sexual assaults during her um, life, and she is bravely willing to share her story. And um, she's also started a nonprofit at wewillorg.com. And um, the, the focus of that is We Will Heal. Um, I'm looking at a book here that Brittany just gave me, a collection of sexual assault survivor stories produced by We Will. And so we're going to talk about that organization. So Brittany's a survivor, but some survivors, rightly so, don't share their stories. Um, but some survivors do share their stories. In the book that she showed me, there's a lot of stories there. And Brittany's willing to share her story so that if you're a survivor of sexual assault, we both pray that there'll be things you'll hear in this podcast that will give you hope and heal you. And if you're trying to help someone heal, that ideas will come into your mind to be able to better meet the needs of those that are survivors of sexual assault. So Brittany's active LDS. She's 23. She's just graduating from BYU Law School. This podcast we being recorded in early March, where we just learned that graduation is canceled mm -hmm. at BYU. So Brittany is not walking anywhere. Well, um, so a lot of you are in that boat. Um, Brittany is off to Georgetown, um, and we'll talk about that for more work. Is that okay by way of introduction, Brittany? Yeah, that, that sounded perfect. Thank you. So I think we'll start chronologically, is just kind of talk about... Um, the times that she's been a survivor of sexual assault and all the lessons. So this will be a little bit of chronologically from starting at age 15 to where she is now, but there'll be a bunch of kind of like in the moment, this is how, what I did to survive this moment. And this is what helped me in this moment. And this is what I'm learning. So it's, we'll just kind of get started. So okay. Brittany, thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Um, and my guests sometimes bring somebody with them. Uh, Brittany's brother-in-law is here, Andrew, mm -hmm. and um, he won't be on the podcast, but I just want you to know that often our guests bring somebody with them, and it's kind of brave to be on a podcast. So that's a pretty normal thing. Um, so kind of just start where this happened. You're living a pretty typical life, and then mm -hmm. at age 15, things yeah. changed. Things changed big time. So um, when I was 15, I had a friend I was really close to in high school, and this was all happening in Texas. And um, I went over to her house for a sleepover, and I was just sleeping in a bed next to hers when in the middle of the night I woke up to someone touching me, and um, I didn't really know what to do. And so I just kind of moved and rustled to make it look like I was um, waking up a little bit, kind of like peeked my eyes and saw that it was her brother just slinking out of the room is really the only way to put it. And, um, yeah, just, um, realized in that moment, what had happened to me, I immediately texted one of my guy friends. I woke my friend up and told her I had to go like emergency babysit for my family. Um, my guy friend, um, came up, came to the house and he picked me up and drove me to his house and he let me have his room and, um, he sat there and listened to me cry while we watched Hotel for Dogs. Um, and it was um, it was really nice to have someone right there right then to to talk to about what had happened. And um, and yeah, so so that experience was pretty 
pretty horrific. It was the first even remotely sexual experience that I had. And I didn't get to choose when I had that exposure. And I think that that was really huge and kind of kind of horrible for me. And I did blame myself because I'd had a crush on her brother um, and he knew I had a crush on him, but it was like a silly crush. Like he was 19 at the time and like I knew it was silly and like I was just being like, you know, teenage girlish like about it. Um, but, but I really did blame myself. And so I didn't tell anyone for a while. I think I Facebook messaged him and said like, Hey, I woke up sort of thing. Um, within a few months I told my friend what had happened and I told my friend group and I told my parents. Um, so everyone knew within a couple months, um, we didn't press charges. When I talked to my mom about it, she said that the same thing had happened to her when she was a kid with her, um, friends, brothers, and so, so it just was kind of left at that, but not being able to choose the first time I had any sexual exposure was, was really difficult. And I think that often when we talk about sexual abuse um, that happens as a child, that that's not something that's brought up too often is the fact that like a big choice was taken away from you. I've never thought of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, so that was pretty horrible, but um but it was, it ended up being okay. Like my church leaders like completely understood. No one made me take on any blame, but having that first experience did kind of change the way that I looked at men. And I trusted this boy, like, you know, we would hang out with her brother sometimes cause he was only a little bit older than us, but I don't know. It just kind of changed the way that I looked at that. And so, um, we moved soon after that happened, we moved to Tennessee and I met a boy in high school that I really liked and that things were great. Um, and we stayed together for my senior year. And then um, after we graduated, um, we knew we were going to the same college. And so we planned to stay together. But um, he one time I was over at his house and um, I, don't, I never know exactly how to explain what You're happened. Doing just great. <laughs> um, but but essentially um, we were like making out or whatever. And then he kept pushing and kept pushing. And I would say no and say no and say no. And he asked me probably like 20 or more times if we could just do a little more, a little more. And it's like, I would relent a little bit, but then eventually got to the point where he wanted to engage sexually with one another. And, um, I wasn't okay with that. And I told him that, but he, um, he wouldn't accept no. And basically just told me he wouldn't take me home until we did. And so I did. Um, wow. yeah. And I thought, you know, like I said, yes, like I said, yes, cause I wanted to go home, but I, my thought was I said, yes, which means I had sex, which means I, you know, no longer deserving of God's love, which is definitely not true, but these are all just things that you think at the time. I mean, even sure. if you've had sex willingly, you're deserving of God's love. But, but at the time I thought like, okay, like We've all heard the chewed piece of gum analogy. Now I'm never going to get married and no one's ever going to want me. And it just the amount of shame that occurred um, because of that incident was horrific. And he and I entered into a longer relationship and I stayed with him because I thought like, you know, I'd had sex with him. I thought it was completely consensual. It wasn't until later in college after he and I had actually broken up that I realized what consent and coercion were um, that I was told about that. And so it was at that time that I realized I was raped. And um, looking back at the relationship, there were many mental, emotional, and sexual abuses that occur that I just didn't recognize. And um, 
after the relationship had ended and prior to learn to realizing that I was raped, I went raped. I went to my um, church leader, my bishop, and I told him what had happened, but I didn't tell him. I didn't tell him the whole story because I didn't want to. I just said like, hey, look, I've been sexually active. What do I do, need to do to repent? And he, um, he, you know, it was, you know, the whole repentance process and how that goes. Um, but like the whole time I just had a really hard time because I didn't feel like God was changing me. I was like, I know how repentance is supposed to work. I've repented for things and felt changed. Um, but like I didn't feel like I was being changed. I didn't feel like the atonement of Jesus Christ was making me a better person. I didn't, didn't feel like anything was happening. And it was really frustrating to feel like I'm just trying to be better and get better. But but this whole repentance thing is feeling really empty. And I felt God was with me, but I didn't feel like I was making any progress. And I, looking at, back at that now, I realized that that was because I didn't have anything to repent for. Um, I hadn't told my Bishop, the whole story. And um, because I was struggling so much with repentance and feeling like I was really changing, I decided to just tell him everything that had happened and how everything had come about. And he was the first person to ever really tell me that it wasn't my fault. Um, and I still didn't totally know what that meant at the time. And I thought, like, no, if he just knew like the whole story, if he knew like everything that was going on, he would recognize it was my fault, that it was my problem, that I did something wrong. Um, but I mean, after intellectually learning what consent and coercion were, I realized that he was right. I had, I didn't do anything wrong. There was nothing that I could be blamed for. And so of course the repentance felt empty. It didn't have anything to repent for. Thanks for being so brave already in this yeah. podcast to share these two experiences. Um, we could, lots of questions come into my mind and maybe mm -hmm. our listeners, um, a lot of people just want to put their arms around you and say, thanks for sharing this. It's really brave. Uh, talk about the amount of time it took from the Bishop to sort of get from rec from when you first talked to him and maybe it wasn't the same Bishop to where he recognized that this was not a repentance situation. Um, it took about four months. It was the same Bishop. Um, but, I would meet with him bi-weekly as part of the repentance process. And um, it was, I don't know, I just, I, I, like I said, hadn't told him the whole story. And there was one week kind of, I mean, obviously toward the end of these four months where um, the spirit just said, like, you have to tell him the whole thing. And I thought the spirit was telling me that because it was like, oh, you're extra guilty. And that's why that's why you're having this problem. It's like, you should be extra ashamed. And so that's why you need to tell him everything. Um, and after I told him everything and he told me it wasn't my fault, this spirit like helped confirm that for me. And it helped me realize why I'd had that impression to go ahead and tell him everything. And so it, once I told him the whole situation, it was like an immediate turnaround. He immediately, um, he was kind of apologetic for making me repent, but I'm like, look, man, like I'm the one who didn't tell you everything. Like, it's okay. Like everything's fine. Um, but having his support there was really important. Uh, how long did it take you? And maybe you're still doing this to forgive, to conclude that it, there was no sin involved and that you didn't need to repent. Man, it's something that I, I still struggle with because, you know, you hear, that, there, that the church doesn't have like a line where like it's okay or not okay to like do certain things. Like there's no like chastity line. It's just 
you know, don't engage in behaviors that make these feelings arise. And so it's like, well, like I made out with him. Like I did that. I know I did that. And so maybe like that was wrong. And so I should take some blame because like I started like making those feelings arise. And um, so I still struggle with that. I mean, I don't think it's not something I actively struggle with. I mean, intellectually, I know it's my fault, but sometimes those feelings of guilt and shame can arise. You know, it's not your fault. I know. Yeah. I know that it's not, but it's, I mean, it's hard when you hear these messages that, oh, you shouldn't be doing these things. You shouldn't be making these feelings arise in anyone else. And then I do that and then something bad happens. It's kind of like, well, what did you expect, Brittany? But I know it's not my fault. I know that. So. Well, it sounds like your bishop did a really good job. Mm -hmm. Do you have any advice for priesthood leaders that are um, talking to someone that's um, a survivor of a sexual assault, and even that person may not realize that there's no sin here. So um, it's sort of like, yeah, you know, what questions should a bishop ask if someone comes in and confesses sexual sin like you did? There's some situations like your situation where it's not a, there's no sin here, even yeah. though they're talking about being sexually active. Just what kind of questions could a priesthood leader ask, or maybe even a parent if a child's opening up to recognize the difference? So um, first I would say to just listen to as much as the survivor or individual chooses to tell you. So I would just start there, just let them keep talking. And um, because sometimes when I would talk about it, I would like start to say these details that remove any culpability from myself, but I would I would stop myself. But if you just sit there and make it clear that you're there to listen to the whole situation, that there's no guilt and no blame and no shame that's happening, then I feel like um, they're more apt to talk openly about um, what has happened to them. And then additionally, um, I think it's okay for bishops to ask, and I would prefer if bishops ask um, if if I wanted to, I guess, is is... I mean, it seems so simple. If someone's coming to you for a sexual sin and they're saying like, oh, I'm guilty, I did this bad thing, then maybe your base assumption is that they want it too. So that would be intent, sort of, mm-hmm. did you intend? Yeah, did like, you want? Did you actually, like, did you actually want to? And I think that that's something that if, if it were asked, if someone had asked me like, well, did you want to have sex? I would have said no. And then we could have gotten into the details on maybe... What a great question. Why? Yeah. yeah. Would it help if the bishop had another woman in the room or another man or just you weren't alone or is that very individualistic? Um, I personally felt like it was really individualistic. I um, I hadn't really told anyone what had happened or that I was sexually active or anything like that. Um, and so I only wanted to tell it to one person, but I do feel like the bishop should present that as an option. As soon as anyone opens up about anything sexual, um, just ask, like, do you want to have someone here with you while you talk about this, or would you prefer it just be you and I? Um, Because even like talking to bishops now about this stuff that has happened in the past and just explaining to them sometimes why I struggle with things. Um, they, I've had bishops who've asked like, do you want someone else in here while you talk about this? And I feel like that's been um, good to have them just present that option of having additional support because sometimes survivors really need it. But I personally, I liked having it be individual. I like that advice to bishops. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
you know, before we went live, I shared that there was a couple, and I think these are different situations than yours. A couple women became sexually active in the ward. And Mm -hmm. my impression was that this was not about sex for them. It was just, it was because their emotional health wasn't healthy. And I think your emotional health was probably fine. So these are different. It was the only way they knew how to feel loved and wanted and needed. And I recognized that there was no sin involved mm-hmm. for in these couple of these situations. And, but I did never open the door that are these um, victims here and are these someone that have actually been victimized here and, yeah. and, and need to heal in that way. I just sort of recognized there was no sin here. And I, any, any thoughts on any of that? Yeah, of course. So, um, so during that relationship that I had had, um, it started with that coercive rape situation and it kind of continued that way where he would push me and push me. And eventually I said, I would say yes. And he, he knew um, that he could do that and have that control over me. And then that control turned into, well, I love this boy and I want him to love me. And so the only way that I could really feel that love um, and feel like I was wanted was through a sexual desire. And so um, that sometimes that is something that would make me feel like, oh, like I have culpability here because sometimes I did want to. But when I look back at that relationship and recognize all the mental and emotional and sexual abuse that occurred, I realized, and my in talking to my um, ecclesiastical leader, he realized that, yeah, there was no sin there because um, of this psychological place that trauma puts you in. And I definitely think that um, whether someone has had a traumatic experience or not, Sometimes the way that our society presents um, the the way that we feel love can make us feel, um, especially women, feel like it's only through a sexual manner. And it's really, it's sad um, to think about the fact that I objectified myself that way and um, made myself think that the only reason I was here was to make someone else happy. But um, wow. but unfortunately, it is something that, that people do struggle with. That's trauma then. Yeah. Yeah, really. It has been, it was really hard. And so I think that a lot of, a lot of those things contributed to the shame that I felt. And, um, that shame prevented me from talking about the situation with anybody and prevented me from talking to my leaders about it. Cause it wasn't until a year after the relationship had ended that I finally went to a Bishop. And in that time I was kind of on and off about church. Um, but, but I, but I needed that time to, to process really what had happened and process my shame. And it, it's made me realize that, that that shame is so much not from God. God doesn't want us to feel ashamed. Um, if we're survivors, he doesn't want us to feel ashamed. Even if we had sex on purpose, shame doesn't come from God. Um, shame. Yeah. Shame comes from Satan. He, he wants us to feel like we're not worthy of love and he wants us to feel like we, um, don't deserve to speak with God anymore to be with him, but God wants to be with us. His aunt, his hand isn't only outstretched toward us, but it's stretching toward us. Um, he places um, individuals in our lives. He places spiritual experiences in our lives all because he's stretching closer to us, no matter what um, we've done or what we think we've done. What would you say, you're 23 now. Yes. What would you say to your 17 year old self? That's just you know, wow. when this first started. Yeah, I I don't know. I've never thought about that before. I would just tell her 
um, that someone loves her. I don't know. I'm going to like get emotional, but I didn't feel loved. I mean, I knew my family loved me. Um, I knew that, you know, I knew conceptually that God loved me, but I didn't like feel it. And I didn't feel um, like I really, I didn't value myself. I didn't recognize my own self-worth or my own, my own value. And so um, I guess I would just make sure that she knows that if no one else loves her, then future me loves her. So Love that. And I recognize you're in a, I don't know if you'd label it this way, a toxic, unhealthy relationship. Oh, absolutely toxic. That there's it's isolation the going on and mm-hmm. your emotional health's declining, your shame's increasing, um, you're getting re-traumatized. And, and having the perspective in a toxic relationship that it's toxic is often very difficult. Mm-hmm. And so I admire you working through that and sort of coming and recognizing that this is not a healthy relationship. And yeah. often it, it's really hard to get out of those relationships and really hard to see it and then to, to then to step out. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, of course. So um, it was something that throughout the relationship I had a very difficult time recognizing. And um, um, I had... This was toward the end of our relationship. I'd presented the fact that I didn't actually want to be having sex. Like this was not something I was interested in. Um, And I told myself like, you know, the next time he wants to, and I don't want to, like, I'm just going to make it very clear. I don't want to, and he's not allowed to do that to me. Um, And so I'd made the decision beforehand that I was going to stick up for myself. And I did, and he didn't care. And um, I, um, this is, hard to talk about and hard to listen to. So I, I'm, I don't know, it's going to be difficult, but I fought as hard as I physically could to get him off of me and he wouldn't get off of me. And, um, I just realized in that moment, like this person does not care about me. Like, um, I don't know. I think that there's no worse way to realize that than when someone's on top of you and does not care about the words you're saying, does not care about the physical force you're trying to use to get them off of you. Um, they only care about, about sex. And, um, and so having that moment is the moment that I realized that he doesn't care and that this relationship um, was horrific. And so actually what happened is um, after that occurred, Um, I came over the next day and I told him, like, I don't want to be in a relationship with you anymore. And he started getting kind of violent. And so I literally ran away and we're in a, yeah, thanks. We're in an apartment complex and, um, he lived just a few apartment buildings away from me and he knew the path that I would normally take to get home. And I don't know if it was the spirit. I don't know what was happening, if it was adrenaline. Um, but, um, I knew I should go a different way home and um, I hid behind someone's AC unit and um, I saw him walk past at some point and um, I could swear he looked right at me and saw me, but I don't know if, sorry, I've never told anyone this before, but I don't know if it was the spirit like protecting me or something, but somehow he didn't see me and I was able to get away and Um, I don't know. I would love to say that I never talked to him again, 
But part of being in a toxic relationship is having that emotional dependence. So I got in a way. Um, thankfully, the semester ended like a week later. Um, and he decided not to come back to school the next year. And um, that was a huge blessing for me. He'd failed out of college, thank goodness. And so um, I would love to say I never talked to him again, but we still talked on the phone. I still had some of that emotional dependence. And it took a really long time. It took probably two years to like actually completely remove myself from him and um, to get out of that relationship. And so it is really hard to recognize in the moment that it's toxic, but then it's also really hard even after you recognize it's toxic to leave. And I think that's something that, um, that people, you know, they say like, why don't you just get away? It's like, there's so much emotional dependence and trauma and your brain is just wired to be dependent on this person. Um, and so it is, it's really hard to leave, but made it out. So I'm glad to be here. <laughs> You've done one of the best jobs of describing how difficult it is to get out of a toxic relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And you are strong, capable, bright, you know, Thanks. <laughs> woman. Um, and I just recognize you were in an impossible situation. I, you know, I just admire, I just admire what you've done that you're able to get out of that relationship. Um, and I, and I just, I go back to this idea of goals and intent and how different the goals were in that relationship, mm -hmm. how different the intent was, um, to be sexually active or not active. And that just, you know, and I recognize that there's no sin in, in what was going on for you. Yeah. Um, and just your ability to get out of that relationship and the shame and the societal narrative and being sexually active would just, everything's working against you yeah. <laughs> to get out of that relationship because of the isolation, the emotional abuse, the emotional dependency. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, I think a lot of people are potentially in those type of relationships not as, and it's hard to get out. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said earlier, so hard to recognize too. And I think that that shame element is huge. Um, and, um, I guess like there was a lot of things that contributed to that shame that I felt. I mean, for one, he was a non-member. And so it made me feel like, oh, I should have known. Like that's the absolute most ridiculous thing. There are wonderful non-member people everywhere, but, um, feeling like ashamed that I'd even made choices that had led to this relationship and the shame that I felt inside. And it was just, the whole thing was just absolutely filled with shame. And, um, and shame isolates us. It, it absolutely does. It help, It causes us not to want to reach out and ask for help. And mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And so I think that this is kind of a good place to move on to, um, to me moving to Utah then. So this was all kind of toward the end of my college experience in Tennessee. And I went ahead and came to law school at BYU. And so it really helped put a, a lot of um, like physical distance between myself and that relationship. And um, I then, yeah, I came to Utah. And like everybody who moves to Utah, I think I had the idea in my mind that, oh, within six months, I'll be married to the perfect man. And, you know, three years later, that obviously hasn't happened. But at the time, I thought, you know, I'm going to be so happy there. And like, no one there will hurt me the same way that this man has hurt me. No one will abuse me in this way. You know, it'll be like, everyone will want to stay chaste and pure. And it'll just be such a happy time. And Oh gosh, like I wish I hadn't been so naive, but I was 
I was hopeful. And I think that there's something beautiful about the fact that I was so hopeful about that. But unfortunately, when I came to Utah, I found that it was not the case. Everybody wanted to be chased and everybody wanted to help um, me keep my goals of um, staying pure before marriage. Because something that I would like and something that I'd just like to take a moment to say is um, if you're a survivor of sexual assault, um, you're just as pure as you were the day you were born. And there's not you should not feel any guilt or shame or like no one will want you in your future relationship. You are just as pure as the day you were born. You have just as much virtue as you had before. And no one, because people, people, when they say they're raped, sometimes say like, oh, he took my virginity. It's like, that's not true. He didn't take your virginity. He didn't take your virtue. He took, he took what he wanted, but you are the one who can choose to give someone your virginity. You're the one who chooses to, to enter into a sexual relationship. And if you didn't make that choice, um, then you're not culpable at all. And additionally, if you have made a choice to be sexually active, there's no, um, I don't know where I heard this. I think it might've been on this podcast, but the savior doesn't make people, he turns scarlet sins to white. He doesn't turn them to pink. Like you are, even if you've chosen to be sexually active, um, you are pure as well. And I think that that's something um, that I learned through my quasi repentance process where I was repenting for things I didn't really need to. And that's something that my bishop really emphasizes that I'm not a piece of chewed gum, that I'm worthy of love, even having, you know, at the time we thought having been sexually active by choice. And so Quick aside, but now back to where I was in Utah. So I came to Utah. Um, like a lot of people, dating wasn't working out exactly the way that I wanted. So um, I decided to hop on Mutual, which is, you know, I think a great place. That's where I met the boy that I'm dating now and we're, you know, happy. But um, I went on Mutual and I went on a date and um, he decided to take advantage of me. Basically what had happened is we went out for um, hot chocolate. He took me back to his house. Um, and well, we were like driving back to my house and we stopped at his house and he said, Oh, I just need to grab something from inside really quick. And I was like, mm, like I'll wait in the car because, you know, I was trying to keep myself safe. I thought I was doing everything that I needed to. And, um, Anyway, he eventually just made me feel safe to come inside. And so I chose to go inside his house and then he refused to let me leave until wow. I participated yeah, in sexual activities with him. And um, he wanted sex, but, you know, thankfully I was able to find a way out of that. But I mean, I still performed sexual acts that I didn't want to do. And that's very much sexual assault. And, um, you know, I walked away from that date just like wondering what had happened. I thought like, wow. you know, I'm... I'm dating in Utah. I'm dating members. And, um, this, this is still happening to me. I was on an LDS dating app, um, and I thought everything would be fine. And then it wasn't. And so that was extremely difficult for me. Um, and again, just the shame came back of like, oh, I could have, I should have just stayed in the car. Like, how could I have not stayed in the car? That was so dumb. But it's like, I'd asked him if his roommates were home and he'd said, yes, granted he lied, but it's like, the fact, I don't know, the, I blamed myself, but the fact that I blamed myself is one of the most absolutely ridiculous things that I can think of. No one should ever blame anyone for 
any sexual assault, no matter how the situation arose. I think um, I talked about my sexual assault in my Relief Society relatively, relatively recently, and it broke my heart because one of the sisters um, came up to me and I hadn't described what had happened to me, but she said, oh, like, I'm really sorry that that sexual assault happened to you. She's like, I have a friend who was sexually assaulted, um, but this was at BYU and she brought a boy back to her room. Um, and so it's like, what, what did she expect? I'm like, oh well, she gosh. didn't expect to get sexually assaulted. No one, no one should ever expect that. I mean, you should try to protect yourself against it. But the fact that people are still saying these things like, oh, horrible, horrible. And so um, I don't blame myself directly afterwards, I recognized what had happened. I knew that I had just done what I needed to, to stay safe. Um, and I immediately told people I reported it to BYU. They were great, great about it. Yeah, it was, um, it was a really, I mean, it wasn't a good experience, but afterward I had a, a fine experience with getting over it, except for the fact that I'd felt like I was in this place where I was supposed to be safe and everything was supposed to be safe. And this has still happened. And, um, you know, I kind of moved on from that, but then I was dating a boy and I'd been dating him for quite a while. He was interested in marriage and, um, I wasn't quite there yet. Um, and at one point we were just taking a nap on the couch together and I woke up to him touching me, um, without, you know, my consent, obviously, cause right. I was asleep and he really like, he had a large amount of culpability because I told him about my previous assault. I wow. told him about what had happened to me. And the, and the fact that my first one, when I was 15 was someone doing that to me while I was asleep and he chose to do the exact same thing and make the same choice. And I was absolutely just wrecked, just devastated. Someone that I had trusted, someone who was a member who held the priesthood and gave someone a priesthood blessing, like a few days after that, who attended the temple with me. Um, it just, I, again, like I thought I was in a situation where I was safe and I wasn't. And this isn't to say that you shouldn't trust the people you're with, but it was for me That's really hard. hard. Yeah, it's it was really, really hard. hard. And so, um, so I'd had that experience and previous in our relationship, my relationship with this boy, he had had issues with porn and it was something that, um, you know, I can't like, you know, judge him or anything like we were staying together, but I was pretty open about the fact that I was having a really hard time, that he was having a hard time with pornography. And his mother had said something along the lines um, to me of like, well, what do you expect? Um, of course, he's going to have a porn problem because you won't like commit to him. Therefore, like, you know, he has to have some sort of sexual something going on. So basically she was saying, because I wouldn't marry him, he had a porn problem. And you know, that's just, Yikes. I knew at the time when she said that, that that's the most ridiculous thing. That is not an excuse at all. However, when I was sexually assaulted by him, those words came back to me. Like, what did I expect? Like I wouldn't marry him. So of course he sexually assaulted me. And you know, that's so not true, but the problem with trauma and with these things is that's what your brain tells you is that you're at fault and that you're the one to blame somehow. And so that was a really difficult experience. And so he and I broke up and I became extremely not interested in dating. Like it was the furthest thing from my mind. And I developed an extreme hatred toward men. 
And seems logical. Yeah. Yeah. And it was at this point um, that I kind of started questioning my sexuality a little bit. It, I just, I had such an aversion to men and just like thinking that they were all horrible and bad. Um, that I only enjoyed the company of women and it's like, it oh, like, safe. yeah, I, it felt safe. And I think that, I mean, I know that sexuality is not a result of any traumas when you're a child or anything, but, but like for me, this, having this situation where I could no longer trust men or felt like I couldn't trust men anymore. It did make me question like, I don't know. It just made me feel like I was safe around women and I could trust women and women. They would provide me with the love I needed. I didn't need a sexual love. I didn't want a sexual love. I just wanted someone to care for me emotionally and care about me for more than my body and who I was on the inside. And women did that for me. And so there was a little while where I did question my sexuality. And I think that I, I think that that's something important to talk about too, because I think that, um, that we don't normalize that even even in like trauma circles, like, and women I know who've been sexually assaulted, like oftentimes we don't acknowledge that. And thankfully I've had really good therapists who are experts on sexual trauma, who have been able to let me know that that's totally normal. And that even if I decided or came to the conclusion rather that I wasn't straight, that, and even if it was a result of my trauma, that that's still a wonderful part of myself and a beautiful part of myself and that that's okay. And I've come to the conclusion that I am straight, but having that time where I question my sexuality, I do think that that's something important to talk about because it is an experience that many um, sexual assault survivors do have a period that they go through. I'm not saying everyone does, but some people do. And I think that I wanted... It's very thoughtful. Yeah, I wanted to really make like sure that, that people know that it's okay. And so... My development and my hatred for men, um, it turned into a hatred for God. And I and that's really where a lot of my spiritual struggle has been. It's because, you know, I hated, I just started hating men. I'd had all these experiences and a lot of people really close to me had had similar experiences of abuse or sexual trauma. Um, and I'd found out about... Um, a young girl that I really loved having, um, having something happen to her as well. And it just made me like, of course, hate men, but then like, God, why did you make men like this? Like, because everyone says, oh, men have like a stronger sexual desire than women. And so somehow that's okay. Then. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like, I know that men have a stronger sexual desire than women. I know that God made men and women the way that they are. Therefore, God made men have a sexual desire level that makes it to where they hurt women. women. And I still, sometimes I still struggle with that okay. if I'm being completely honest, because I realize that people have their agency, but why is this drive so, so much that sometimes it does overcome like people's desire to be good. And I know that that's not something that God does. Like intellectually, but sometimes it's hard and I struggle with that a little bit. And, um, so during this time I started struggling a lot with my testimony, um, and feeling like, um, feeling like I could trust God or I could trust Jesus Christ, um, partially because they were men and partially because they made men the way that they are. Um, and I, 
would have periods of time where I didn't feel great about the gospel, but I just told myself that, well, and thankfully I, I have been raised in a home with potentially like the best possible spiritual foundation. And, um, I, it had just been so ingrained in me that like you can pray about anything and talk to God about anything. And so, so I really, I had the opportunity and I, I just think that this was the best possible thing that I could have done, but I just kept praying, even though I was angry at God, even though I was, um, really frustrated, um, and felt like there was no future for me in the church. If, if I couldn't, if I had no desire to marry a man or to be with a man and the whole church is about eternal families, then where does that leave me? It's like, if I just want to be alone, then what's the point of me being here? But I just decided I was going to keep praying. And, you know, if nothing else, God is like my therapist for 10 minutes a day when I'm praying. And so sometimes I would just tell him like, look, I'm mad at you and I'm mad. This is the way things are. And like, I recognize the fact that like, I don't understand all your wise purposes or like whatever, you know, cause I was just mad. Um, but like, I'm mad and I want you to know that I'm mad and this is frustrating for me. And, um, he listened and I know that he listened. And I think that that's something that has been really important to me in this whole journey is just recognizing the fact that he's listening. And, um, so I had the opportunity to, to speak with some friends who, um, who I don't know, had like a really good testimony of heavenly mother. And I think that this was so much like during the, this was during the time where I would just tell God, like, look, I'm at you, like, amen, the end. Um, and I had friends who had really good testimonies of heavenly mother and them speaking about heavenly mother kind of made her like more real to me. And so I just decided to like ask God simply like, does she care? Is she there? Like, does she know I'm here sort of thing? And, um, the confirmation that I received that like, she's there with God and she counsels with God about me was so important because something that I'd really struggled with was the atonement of Jesus Christ and feeling like Jesus Christ and his atonement could apply to me and that he could really not, not the like repentance part of the atonement, but the healing part and the laying the burdens at the savior's feet, because he was a man. Like, how could he understand what I'd gone through? He didn't get it. Like God didn't get it. They were men. Like, wow. how could they possibly get it? Right. I've never um, thought of that. Yeah. And it was something I had an extremely hard time with for a long time. And, um, yeah, just feeling like I've been sexually assaulted. I'm a woman, woman. The only thing that like the only person who could understand me is a woman. And I understand now that the savior knows all of my pains, but having the opportunity to build the testimony of heavenly mother and recognize that she's there and that she counsels with God about me and that she cares about me has been really powerful. Um, just to know that there's like a female up there, like rooting for me and telling her son and her husband how much, um, how much would I have gone through hurts, even though they know, I mean, I know that they know, but just to know that there's a woman up there rooting for me and something that's been really kind of amazing in this is the role of family history and, um, like finding out that 
women in my family have been incredibly strong and incredibly powerful and realizing that they're up there and they're rooting for me too. They're, they're counseling with God. They care. They, they're like observing what's going on and just to like know that there's someone who recognizes the hurt that I'm going through and recognizes why I might be struggling sometimes has been an extremely powerful experience for me. So to have my woman ancestors, to have heavenly mother, and then of course to have heavenly father and Jesus Christ has been, has been absolutely critical through this whole healing process. What has heavenly mother told you? So it, it was a really, it's been a really beautiful experience to build a testimony of her and to feel her love. So um, something that I did as soon as I received the confirmation from Heavenly Father, like she's up there and she cares, is I went to Deseret Bookstore and I got that painting. Um, I don't know how many people listening to this have seen it, but essentially it's Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother um, together. And it kind of looks like their arms are just wrapped around like a ton of their children. Um, and it was like the first depiction of Heavenly Mother that was like allowed to be like distributed by the church. And so it was really super meaningful to me to have gained that testimony and have this painting kind of become available at the same time. So I got that. I hung it in my home. And um, there, there are times where I, you know, because healing is a long journey, um, where I still like I'll lay in my bed and like kind of be thinking about this um, or I'll pray and like finish a prayer. And I look and I see that painting and um, the spirit tells me like, yeah, like she knows, like she cares, like, um, and just having like my divine worth like affirmed and just seeing that painting where they're like hugging their children has been really powerful to feel like comfort in that moment. And so being told that I'm loved and that I'm valued and that um, there is something divine within me that matters has been, has been an amazing experience. I'm thinking of you hiding by the air conditioner. Yeah. And this former boyfriend, a former abuser, not seeing you. And I just wonder the role of Heavenly Mother or female ancestors. Yeah. Well, that made that possible. I definitely think that, that that could be very much the case. And I do think that, um, that like having, having that moment where I was like running away and someone or something. It just being so clear to me, like, you need to go a different direction home. And then being so clear to me, like, this is where you can hide. Like, someone was guiding me. And if it was my Heavenly Mother, that's such a beautiful thing that I'm really thankful for. So, I was at the BYU Maxwell Institute, and I can't remember the exact title of the series of talks, but it was about women in the church. And mm -hmm. one woman gave a wonderful talk about Heavenly Mother. and some of the things that I think aren't doctrinal that have culturally crept in, you know, we don't talk about her because Heavenly yeah, Father's trying yeah. to protect her and her names. And I just don't know if that's our doctrine. I just think no. that's probably some preferences that our leaders have shared. And I think that we're learning that we need to talk about Heavenly Mother and she's equal to Heavenly Father. And mm -hmm. 
having her in our lives is part of the plan of salvation. And I would, so I see kind of what you're talking about with that painting. I'm familiar with that painting. Oh yeah. Well, and I just, yeah, I just think that we silenced heavenly mother. Yes. Um, in a way that's not doctrinally there Mm -hmm. just with personal preferences along the way. And I think we've gradually are unsilencing heavenly mother and we need her voice. I need yes. her voice as a man. Yeah. I want, and I work on my relationship with Heavenly Mother. I work on my relationship with Heavenly Father. And at times they both help me. Mm-hmm. And I recognize your relationship with Heavenly Mother is particularly important. Yes. Well, and just like I said, having someone who is a woman. And even though I know that Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ understand to have someone that it's like, I can understand why they understand is, is incredibly helpful for me. And knowing that there is someone like me who has a measure of godliness has helped me feel the measure of godliness that's within myself. And I love your point about the atonement um, is a lot of that's not Mm -hmm. repentance related and, Mm -hmm. and all this pain and trauma you feel in your life is not repentance related. And I, as a YSA bishop, I, it was always easier to help people overcome the repentance part of the atonement because it was kind of mechanical. Yeah. It was just these steps. Yeah. And, I, and somehow we both felt at some point that the person was clean. Mm-hmm. But overcoming the trauma that you've experienced through the atonement is more complicated. Yes. And it takes a good therapist and it mm-hmm. takes time. But I think, have you felt like the atonement's been able to heal you? Even though Christ, there's no scripture. I mean, Christ was never a woman. Yeah. And he obviously was never a survivor of sexual assault. Mm-hmm. But this descended below all things that's yes. in DNC sometimes gives hope to people that somehow he understands. Yeah. So um, something that was kind of popular when I was a young woman, and it's kind of silly, um, is the idea of like your birthday scripture. So it's essentially like you find a chapter that corresponds with the month and then a verse that corresponds with the day. And I could never find one that I loved, but I think it's been a tender mercy as I've gotten older and I have developed love for a particular scripture that then I realized like, oh, this scripture is a birthday scripture. I don't know how dumb that is, but it's almost 7-Eleven. And um, yeah, as I got through my teenage years, I kind of like paid special attention to it just because it was like that silly like birthday scripture thing. But It says, and he shall go forth suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind. And this, that the word might be fulfilled, which saith he will take upon him the pains and the sicknesses of his people. And I feel like this verse in particular is really powerful for sexual assault survivors because the first thing that it says does not relate to temptation. It doesn't relate to the repentance part of the atonement. It says pains and I mean, the only way to describe sexual assault is pain and just, it's just a deep, deep pain that needs a lot of healing. And so pains and afflictions is that first part. And then of course the temptations of every kind, but then it goes on toward the end, saith that he will take upon him the pains and the sicknesses of his people. And that word pains again, but then additionally adding sicknesses to it because what happens with trauma is your brain changes. And I like, I mean, I guess I don't like to think about the fact that my brain is sick, but your brain is not the way your brain is supposed to be. And so your brain has been changed. Your brain has been altered and it has been made 
into some sort of a sickness. There's a sickness. Um, I mean, triggers, for example, someone hugging me shouldn't make me feel triggered. It shouldn't make me feel unsafe. That should be something that makes me feel really safe. But, but sometimes if someone hugs me in a particular way, it's like, it's a trigger. My brain is sick, but Christ, it says in this scripture, is there to heal those pains and those sicknesses. And so that scripture gives me a lot of hope in just knowing that, um, that the pain, it can go away and the sickness, it, it can go away and I can be completely whole and completely healed. And something that I really want to emphasize is that a healing from a sexual assault is not a one-time thing. It's been years for me of healing from all of these and learning to, to, um, to just become better and slowly but surely becoming better. And I have some really bad days and I have some really good days and realizing that this is a journey that I'll probably be on my whole life and that that's okay. Um, but that the savior, like eventually I'll be made whole. And that's, I mean, that's like the resurrection part of the atonement too. It's like, um, that healing, it's not just for our bodies. It's for our minds as well. And to know that my healing will be fulfilled. It'll be completely whole in the next life is really encouraging as well. But then also to recognize that during this life, um, I can lay burdens at the Savior's feet. And that's something that it was a visual that never really resonated with me when I was younger. And it didn't resonate with, with me throughout a lot of this sexual assault experiences, these experiences and this healing. But um, I have had the opportunity to go to many Protestant church meetings. And at the end, they call people forward if they want to give their, give themselves to Jesus. And oftentimes they'll have like a statue of Jesus or like a cross up there, some sort of representation of him and his atonement for us. And um, as I've gotten older, I've kind of used this visual to imagine myself like carrying my sexual assault, whatever that burden looks like, and just walking it to the front of that church and just plopping it down and walking away. (laughs) Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And just coming forward and really just giving it to the savior, which I think is something that's conceptually like kind of difficult to understand when you need to heal. But, but when you learn to rely on the savior, the power that comes therein, um, he really does take his yoke upon you and he, he carries it with you. Because like I said, I think that this will be a lifelong journey and that I will never truly be healed from this sexual assault until the next life. But having the savior with me to carry it, um, makes it bearable because, um, and I'm sure this is something that many people who have experienced sexual assault struggle with, but I mean, there have been times where I have not wanted to be on planet earth anymore because honest. Yeah. Because I haven't been able to bear this pain. Um, And it was only when I was able to lay this burden at the Savior's feet and ask him to carry it with me that I've been able to continue. You know, I love what you, I love everything you just said, but I love that you, this burden may be something you'll, won't be healed to the next yeah. life. And maybe that's okay. Yeah. And maybe, it is okay. Maybe accepting the reality of that is more helpful than thinking this, I will be back to who I was at age 14. Yeah. I, I will never and, be back to the, who I was so at may- age 14. And I don't think I want to either. I mean, I used to 
think that my sexual assaults, that they defined me in a really negative way and that um, they defined me as someone who's depressed and someone who's broken and someone who couldn't be better um, ever again. But now they define me in a way that it's like, I know I'm resilient. I know that I can power through anything and that I am someone who who deserves love and someone who loves every part of me and loves, you know, me enough to put their own needs aside. And, and so I love, I, I would never wish to be sexually assaulted. If I could go, like, sometimes people ask me, if you could go back, like, would you have changed? Absolutely. No one wants this. Absolutely not. But I love what has happened to me because of these things. Like, um, and not because of these things, but because I've learned to heal from these things. And so I think that that has been an incredibly empowering experience and um, something that that has been really important. Do you want to talk more about how trauma can change your brain? You mentioned that a little bit. I don't know if you've got anything more you want to share about yeah. that. So, um, so in talking to a lot of therapists and having a lot of experiences with those who study the brain, um, just recognizing that trauma literally alters your brain chemicals. And so what happens during excuse me, a trauma situation is that your brain chooses to fight, to flight or to leave or to freeze. And in a sexually charged situation, um, and for many survivors of sexual trauma, they find that their brain freezes. And so what happens is anytime that a sexual assault victim is triggered, their brain tells them that they're unsafe in the way that they were unsafe during that time where their agency was taken from them. And then their brain goes back to whatever reaction they had. And so um, my brain will freeze. My I think that I'm unsafe, even though I know that that's not true. But the problem is, is that your brain has um, made these neuropathways that are different and that your brain now connects, like my example, a hug, a hug hug in a certain way, um, with your unsafe, because that's the way that my ex-boyfriend used to hug me. And so my brain thinks like it's happening again, like he's going to do it again, sort of thing. And it just, I absolutely like my whole body freezes and I'm just stuck. And so your brain chemicals have changed, but something that I think is actually beautiful about the brain is that you can always create new neuropathways. And, um, I recently had the opportunity to go on a retreat for survivors of sexual assault. It's put on by the Unique Foundation. Um, and I recommend, I recommend any listeners to go ahead and, and look up the Haven retreat because it was a truly life-changing experience. And something that they emphasized was that your brain can create these different neuropathways and that you can start associating these negative things with new things. And it takes a lot of conscious work and a lot of therapy. And it's really hard. And it's hard to to choose a different response when you're triggered. But but your brain, it can become wired differently. And it and you can undo some of that damage. And granted, I mean, like I've been saying, it'll be a lifelong journey. Like that'll never completely go away. But it is, but it is possible to reduce those effects and to have that get better. Um, and so, yeah, your brain, it, it does change, but you, you can change it too. And I think that that's something that's really important. And 
I am encouraged that at some point in my life, I can feel um, completely normal. And I have days where I feel completely normal and nothing bothers me and nothing triggers me and it's fine. Um, and as time has passed, there have definitely been more of those good days than the bad days. Um, and so I look forward to a point in my life where, you know, maybe the bad days to the good days are one to a hundred. Um, and so I have encouragement that that'll, that that'll happen, but I know in the next life that I will be healed and that I have full faith in that. I love the things you're doing to heal. Um, that sometimes there's shame around like going to a therapist, particularly Uh for my generation. Yeah. Um, Although my own father de-shamed that for me as a teenager, because we went to, uh, as a a family, we went through to a therapist because there were difficult things going on. Mm -hmm. And he was a stake president at the time. And, you know, seeing him sort of as a business leader and a stake president, take our whole family to therapy in 1975, (laughs) 76, 77, did de-shame that for me. And I've seen a therapist a couple of times, but there's a lot of, and this event you talked about, this group and mm-hmm. connecting with other people. I just like what you're talking about. I, I'm glad that you're mad at God or at peace with that. Um, yeah. I didn't have any, I, if you, if you were the first person that told me I, they were mad at God, I think my first reaction would be to, to try to talk you out of that mm-hmm. or to sh- maybe even say that was shameful or you shouldn't be doing that. And the yeah. more I hear stories the more I think that's a pretty logical thing given what happened to you yeah. and pretty normal well, and not, and I think God can handle it because yeah, I think he's probably understands what's happened and his mm-hmm. love for you is complete and unconditional. Same with heavenly mother. So I think he can handle us when we feel mad at God. I think it's sort of what we do over time, which you have done over time yeah. is to try to move move past that. And part of that is even developing different neural pathways, if I'm using the right vocabulary. Mm -hmm. Well, and something that I think is interesting about the whole mad at God concept and the fact that, yeah, I have had people tell me like, well, you shouldn't be mad at God. Like he does everything correctly. He does everything perfectly. And I'm like, yeah, that might be true, but I can still be mad about how it happens. Right. And um, something I like to equate it to is, so I grew up with, um, three sisters and a brother, and we were all really close in age. And that came with a lot of fun, but it also came with a little bit of fighting. And, um, in that fighting, like I have one sister in particular who she will get mad and she'll get so mad and it's like a rage, but then like three minutes later, she's apologizing and everything's okay. And it's like, yeah, everything's fine. I don't care anymore. And I think it's a similar thing with God is that, you know, he loves us. Like my bonds with my sisters and my brother are so strong that it's like, they could be like livid with me. And it's like, if I've done something wrong, then it's just okay. Like, or if I've done something that I know hurts them, it's like, okay, I understand. Like, I'm sorry that you feel this way. I still love you. I still want to talk to you. Like you still matter so much to me. And so I think that I like to kind of equate my anger with God in that same way. It's like, I know he still loves me. I still love him. Those bonds are still there. They're so strong, but it's okay to be mad. It's okay to feel mad sometimes. And I think too often in the church, we think, oh, I should be happy all the time. Um, there's sunshine in my soul all the time. And that's just who I am. That's so unreasonable. It's so unreasonable and so ridiculous to think that I'm going to be happy with everything that happens to me all the time. I'm not, and I'm not going to be happy with those closest to me all the time. And one of the people that's the closest to me is God. And so it's okay if I'm a little mad at him, sometimes he'll, he's, he'll understand. Talk about, um, 
There's a few more questions I want to ask you. Mm-hmm. Um, one is just instruction at the home. Um, yes. So, you know, my wife and I are the parents of six kids, and now the youngest is 19 or 20 on a mm-hmm. mission. But particularly if I had younger kids, you know, that are face, and I guess even my own kids could be the victims of sexual assault. Yeah. It's not just, it starts at age 14 or 12 or 10. Mm-hmm. What can parents do? So that if their own children are, are victims, that they can, um, just what, what advice do you have? So something that is so huge is listening. And so this is like the same, same concept I described with bishops is that as a parent, you just absolutely have to listen to your child. And I think establishing that trust is so important. I told my parents about um, most of my sexual assaults. Um, they know about all of them now. Some of them. Way to go, parents. Yeah. Yeah. Um, some, some of the sexual assaults I didn't tell them about, but, but now they know about all of them. Um, but a lot of them, I just came right to them and I said, look, like this happened to me. Um, and my trust in my parents didn't start with me telling them about my sexual assault when I was 15 or when I was, um, 23, or 22, I'm 23, but the trust started far before that. My parents made it clear that that I could talk to them about anything and everything and that that was encouraged and that they would just sit there and listen and um, listen to me cry or um, listen to me explain my shame or my frustration or listen to the fact that I'm mad at God. They just would listen to me. And I had that faith in them. And so I think starting in the home, you just need to make it an environment where you listen to your children and um, listen to all of their struggles and just, yeah, just make it clear that you love them regardless. And um, beyond that, as far as sexual assault prevention or um, helping your children who have been sexually assaulted. In law school, I've had the opportunity to write a paper um, that surveys the sexual education laws in the five states with the highest rate of rape and the five states with the lowest rate of rape. And just my survey was trying to find if there were any commonalities between um, those states with very low rates of rape and like what their sexual education laws looked like. And I found a really strong correlation between the quality and quantity of sexual education and the rate of sexual assault in a state. And I'm not saying that these concepts absolutely have to come to public schools, but what I am saying are these are concepts that are really important for parents to understand. So you never anticipate or you hope that your child will never choose to engage in um, an unsafe um, sexual encounter or or what have you, your child, just as much as they might be a victim of sexual assault, may very well become a perpetrator of sexual assault if they don't know these concepts. So the top concepts that my paper show that really matter are consent, coercion, and refusal skills. So consent is teaching both a would-be victim and a would-be perpetrator that you need someone's permission before you move forward with them sexually and in any way. And, um, this even can include kissing, um, if that's what if that's what you want. Something that really attracted me to the boy that I'm dating now is um, the fact that 
before he kissed me for the first time, he asked if he could kiss me. And it was such a stupid thing, but people always think that, oh, consent and like asking someone for permission is going to be awkward or it's going to like ruin the moment or whatever. It made that moment so much more intimate for me. And so, yeah. And so it, it made that kiss so innocent and so pure and that I knew exactly where it was going. I knew exactly what was going on. And I knew that we were both okay with it. And that was huge for me. Um, and so consent is really important for, for someone who, who wants to push a sexual situation. So that way they, and maybe push is the right word, the wrong word, but someone who wants to move forward sexually with someone else, they need to make sure that they know that they have to ask for consent all along the way. And this helps, I mean, because again, you hope as members of the church, you hope your children aren't going to engage in sexual activities, but how much worse is it to have your child engage in a sexual activity, push their partner, and then get a sexual assault accusation that is true because they didn't ask for consent. And then your whole, your child's whole life is ruined simply because they had the sexual desire and they didn't learn what consent was. I'm not sure if I'm making sense. That makes sense. Okay, perfect. Um, and then additionally, consent is really important for would-be victims or survivors of assault because after what happened to me, so I was raped by coercion for that first time and I didn't know what consent was. And I didn't know that I hadn't given consent. I didn't know that by like just not answering his questions anymore and by staying silent and like covering my head with a pillow that, that that was not consent. Um, and so it, if I had known what consent was at that time, Maybe I'm not saying I necessarily would have, but maybe I would have been able to tell someone about it because I would have understood that I didn't provide consent and that this wasn't something that I wanted. Um, This is similar for the concept of coercion, which is the second important concept um, that I believe really needs to be taught by parents in the home um, or in our schools. So coercion is persuading someone through threat or use of force. So saying, um, I'm not going to take you home if you don't do this with me, or, um, I'm going to tell your parents that you, you know, went further than you maybe should have, if you don't do this with me or just some sort of threat or saying, or like, I'm going to end the relationship or I'm going to end the relationship or I'm going to hurt you somehow. Just any threat or any force that is used is coercion. And so by teaching these concepts, you teach individuals, um, who would otherwise perpetrate an assault that, that this is wrong and you can't, ever use these methods to convince anyone to have sex with you. And I think something that's also important with the concept of coercion that I probably should have said a moment ago is that asking someone repeatedly to do something with you after they said no repeatedly, that is coercion. And I don't think that's something that we talk about enough is that wearing someone down emotionally is a form of coercion. So teaching coercion to would-be victims also teaches these individuals that if they've said yes or if they have um, simply stayed silent because of someone's threats or someone's force, that they didn't consent to sexual activity and that it's not their fault. And having them have these tools before one of these encounters allows them to directly after the encounter seek help because keeping my sexual assault bottled up for years absolutely ate me alive and led, I believe, to deepen the psychological issues that 
that I developed. And then finally, refusal skills. They teach a would-be victim how to say no and a would-be assaulter to recognize no because no's come in all different forms. So we need to know how to recognize them. And then they also teach victims to have that confidence and have that power to say no. And granted, even if after they say no, they might be assaulted and that's completely not their fault. But having a plan and having some something in place will help protect them. And so these concepts... I mean, my study proves that teaching them reduces the rate of sexual assault, um, but it also can protect um, individuals who otherwise would assault someone. What age would you teach, start to teach your children these in the home? As soon as they're born. <laughs> Not necessarily in a sexual way, but just no one is allowed to do anything that you don't want them to do to you. That's consent. And granted, obviously with parents, it's like, okay, well, you have to take a bath. Like that's, that's, you know, a different form, a different issue, but, but just teaching your kids, like, um, so currently I'm writing a children's book and the basis of the book is, um, you wouldn't force your friend to eat a cookie if they didn't want to eat a cookie. If they said no, you'd just be like, okay, like fine, whatever. Like, I don't care. Um, and so that's like teaching consent is teaching like you know, you wouldn't force someone to do something that they didn't want to. Like, why would you do that in a sexual situation? Or additionally, like if, if you said no to wanting a cookie and your friend shoved a cookie down your throat, like you'd probably go tell your mom. Right. I mean, so it's teaching these concepts in a non-sexual way very early, I think is really important. And, um, teaching your kids that, you know, you can't, if Sally says no to playing with you, you shouldn't ask her a hundred more times before she says yes to playing with you. Like you just you know, she said, no, good enough. Like, let's move on. Like, um, you can't threaten to like not invite someone to your birthday party or whatever kids use. Um, you teach your kids how to say no to people. Um, and all these concepts are really important from a really young age. My study that I performed previously showed that introducing the sexual aspect to these concepts starting in around middle school is the best time to, um, to prevent assault. But I don't think there's such thing as a too young to teach kids um, these concepts of consent, coercion, and refusal skills or saying no, um, simply because they're applicable in all life situations and you don't have to teach them sexually. What about young kids that don't understand sexual behavior that you want to create physical boundaries like, you know, someone that's grooming someone younger that starts to touch them on their shoulder or tickles them, behaviors that would be typically appropriate, yeah. especially for a family member, a grandpa, I'm a grandpa, an uncle, mm -hmm. um, but trying to teach, you know, kids younger than middle school sort of physical boundaries and it's okay to say no, that someone puts their arm on your shoulder. Or yeah. You. So um, something that I heard at this retreat that I'd went to recently is this one woman had established with her children an idea of boundaries. And it was kind of funny to hear about three-year-olds who say the word boundaries, because who, <laughs> who, who knows what that means at three years old, but just establishing with her kids that, you know, you can feel emotionally like someone crosses a line or you can feel physically that someone crosses a line. And, um, what she taught her kids is the concept of asking every day, did someone cross a boundary for you today? Like did someone cross a boundary? did someone do something that you didn't like today to you? And um, then telling them that when someone is crossing their boundaries to say, you're crossing my boundary, 
just having that those be the words that you use. And she was saying that her refusal skills. Yeah, refusal skills. So she was saying that her poor sister was playing with her daughter and she took one of the pony toys that the daughter wanted to play with or something like that. And the daughter's like, you're crossing my boundary. That's my toy sort of thing, which is kind of a silly version of the situation. But you think, but yeah, the daughter knew she was like three and she announced you are crossing my boundary. And I think that that is so important. And immediately, like the little girl said to the sister, like, I'm going to go tell my mom. And the sister was like, good. Yes. Tell your mom, like, because I crossed a boundary for you. And like, let's, let's just encourage them to talk about when someone crosses their boundary, because something that is so intuitive for us when we're younger is to tell someone when they're making us uncomfortable or or to tell someone when we don't like something that they do. And that's something that's kind of conditioned out of us as we get older. But when we're three and, you know, you are like, I have a niece. I, you know, if I dress her and she says like, oh, I don't want to wear this shirt. Like that's so intuitive for her to just immediately say what she wants. But, you know, we condition it out of children by saying, well, you have to wear this shirt. Like it's cold outside. You need long sleeves or whatever, which is fine. Like in those situations, it's fine. But we also need to teach them that there are certain situations where you absolutely say when someone is crossing your boundary and you absolutely say when you don't like something that someone is doing to you. It's really helpful. I, you know, I had some kids that loved to be tickled and some that Mm, didn't. And if I were doing it all over again, I'd probably have better conversations with them, something as innocent as tickling. Do you want to, is it okay if I tickled you? Because some loved it and I loved it and some didn't like it, but I still kind of tickled them because (laughs) they eventually started laughing. Yeah. As someone who's ticklish, yeah, I'm a big proponent of like, let's talk to people if they actually want to be tickled. Yeah. So so I, yeah. I get it. Yeah. No, but. And that's obviously, you know, a different category, but I think it's developing the skills you're talking about that can lead to better skills when you need them in these difficult Mm -hmm. situations. Yes. Um, You gave your parents a shout out. You kind of said that they, you knew that, uh, that you could talk to them about stuff. Yes. What did they do to create a feeling of trust where you kind of felt you could open up? Um, It was really something that I feel like just started when I was younger Um, my mom was just really good about, um, talking about the way that she felt about things and asking us how we felt about things or making observances about like the way we act and like, does this mean that you feel this way sort of thing? Um, and just really like prompting us with questions and, um, prompting us to talk about our feelings. And so, I mean, obviously as a preteen, there were some times where it's like, oh, I don't want to talk to my mom about things, you know, but but um, but just feeling like like I could be open with them. And like there were some mistakes that I made as a teenager um, that I didn't necessarily want to tell them. But, um, you know, I like go to the bishop if I feel like if I felt like I needed to or what have you. And they my mom would simply ask, like, do you want to tell me why you went to the bishop? If not, like, that's OK sort of thing. And I mean, of course I want to like unburden myself. So of course I'm going to tell her. So, um, just really being, making, I guess she just made me really conscious of my feelings and made it clear that it was okay to have feelings and okay to express those feelings and express my experiences. Um, so that way when I got older and expressing my feelings and my experiences became more serious, that, um, I would be really open with it. And something that, um, that I had a hard time with is I didn't tell my parents about 
the sexual assault that occurred between the ages of 17 and 20 with that one um, boyfriend mostly. And it was really dumb at the time, but, you know, I was really dependent on him and I didn't want them to find out anything bad about him because like, I didn't want them to never be able to forgive him, you know, which is, I don't know, really goofy, especially because this was occurring after our relationship had ended. But again, it's that toxic relationship that it takes a long time for your brain to recover from. Um, and I didn't tell my parents. I actually told a boyfriend who, after we broke up, decided to get back at me by telling my parents about my sexual assault, which is absolutely ridiculous. Never tell anyone else about anyone else's assault. Like, never do that. That's such a horrible thing to do. Um, and my mom, like my poor mom, she said, what did I do to make it to where you didn't feel comfortable telling me? Because she'd worked so hard to cultivate a home where we could talk about anything. And um, I don't know, partially to my mom and partially to all the moms out there who find out about a sexual assault or anything else in this way, it's not anything that you did. It is absolutely just that shame that your child feels and it is um, their brain and it's it's nothing nothing that you did and nothing that you could have done to have them be open with you about that, that it's simply something that needs to be made a choice that needs to be made by them and in their time. And so, um, even though, I mean, my parents did a great job, like I said, but there are still things that I chose not to tell them and that that's okay. If you, if your child tells you, chooses not to tell you things that doesn't reflect on you as a parent at all. Tell, introduce your organization. You're not for, yes. you're not for profit, nonprofit, nonprofit. Yes. So, um, because of that research that I talked about previously in law school, I discovered that sexual assault, like we can reduce the rate of sexual assault and we can prevent sexual assault. And so I really tried to find an organization who worked on this and who wanted to prevent sexual assault. And so I looked around, I searched the internet far and wide, and all I could find were organizations that help support survivors, which is incredibly important. And I can't emphasize how important that is for survivors to have those resources, but I knew that we needed to do something now to prevent assault and that we needed an organization right now who's going to work on this. And so I just decided to start one myself because I figured that there was no better person for the job than myself. Um, I mean, I'm sure there are people that are more qualified, but I was really passionate about it. I just found this research. And so I decided to found my organization. And the name of my organization is We Will. I chose that name mostly because when I was first founding the organization, I wanted to come up with a mission statement for the organization. And um, I just figured that was a good place to start before I named the organization, because after I got my mission statement, I could really get where we wanted to go. And so when I was writing the mission statement, I would say like, we aim to um, prevent sexual assault, or we want to prevent sexual assault, or we desire to help survivors or whatever. And none of those words really felt strong enough. It didn't feel like, like I was really conveying how serious I was about this issue. So I decided that the mission statement would, we would read, we will prevent sexual assault. Um, and then the mission statement says more than that, but it was really like those two words, we will, and having that really powerful, strong, um, language to me was so important that then when I realized, you know, the mission statement is so firm, I wanted to convey that same passion through, um, through the name of my organization. And it has been absolutely amazing to, 
to create the organization. Um, we're active on Instagram. We're active on um, Facebook. And we have a website that I've created. And all of those places create a really unique um, community for survivors because something that is so important when you're a sexual assault survivor is the ability to, one, talk about it with someone. That's like the very first thing is to just open that burden and place it somewhere other than just on your insides, but then also talking about it with people who really understand what you've gone through, other people who have been sexually assaulted or people who have been really close to others who have been sexually assaulted is absolutely astounding. And once a week I post a survivor story that he or she has chosen to share with us. And I'm absolutely astounded by the community love and support that happens in the comment section that then almost every single week, the survivor who shares their story messages me and said, like, if I'd known that this support existed earlier, things could have been so different. Um, or they say that they're just absolutely overcome with the fact that they, that they have received the support and it's truly life-changing for them. And it's been life-changing for me to see that. How do people, will you tell the Instagram address and the Facebook if people want to find it? Yes. Um, so the Facebook, you can just search on the Facebook pages and search for We Will Organization. And then the Instagram is at we.will.organization. Um, and, you know, feel free to like or visit those pages. Um, we love all the support that we can get over there. Talk about your future marriage, you know. <laughs> Um, you're dating somebody. And yes. I, I think that's pretty early. I don't know where that relationship <laughs> is, but um, I don't know if you talk. Um, and it sounds like it's a good relationship, mm -hmm. but I just, I love the way he asked you if he could kiss you. Yeah, me too. And again, and people think your it's... heart back open up to more trauma as you continue to, you know, recognize you're straight. Yeah. And so you're pretty clear on your path here, but your heart kind of opens up to potential new trauma. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the ultimate healing for you is to find a guy yes. that is, follows all these rules and is just, and, and I get really tender here, loves you for this part of your life mm -hmm. and doesn't want to erase this life, doesn't want to not talk about it, yeah. doesn't want to pretend it didn't happen. It actually looks at you, um, um, recognizing the trauma, but looks at you with all the gifts and ability to heal and help other people. And yeah. And that's part of the reason he falls in love with you. Yeah. Um, so my current relationship, um, no matter where it goes, I think it's been incredibly important to me to have this relationship where someone is really respectful of my body and really respectful of what I need. He didn't even know about my prior assaults when he asked if he could, um, if he could kiss me. It was just something that, I don't know, it was beautiful to see that for some men that comes naturally. And so um, no matter where the relationship goes, it's been really important for me to see that someone can value me for more than my body and more than what I have to offer in that way. And so it has, it's been really great. And um, he does really value um, this part of my life. And um, it's kind of funny because I talk about sexual assault so much that it like doesn't even phase me anymore. And then I forget that for other people, that's not normal. And that's not, um, something that happens to them every day. But for me, I talk about sexual assault every day and, um, it's, 
it's never something that jars him when I want to talk about it. Um, Good. It's something, yeah, that's... Because it's part of your life. Mission. Exactly. And he wants he wants to talk about stuff. And when something happens to one of his friends, um, he reaches out to me and, and cares. And it's been... Um, it's been beautiful to see him try and not only support me in this way, but um, to learn from me and to see that I have something really valuable to give the world. And um, I hope I have that something really valuable to give the world. Yeah, I do. You do. Yeah. You're doing it here. You're doing it in an odd profit. <laughs> Thank you. I, yeah, I'm trying. And so I hope that um, whomever I marry, whether it's him or someone else that, um, well, I know that whomever I marry is going to be this way because, um, because I won't accept anything less than that for myself. I, I need someone who's really supportive of this and I need someone who, who cares about it. And so again, no matter where this relationship goes, I know that this has been really valuable and something that I think has been really interesting for me throughout this whole experience with my sexual assault and with dating and having it go pretty poorly, um, is, my patriarchal blessing. So it says only one thing about my future husband. Um, it's like the tiniest line. And you know, when you get your patriarchal blessing as a young girl, that's like the most exciting part of it. But I, I got only a few words and that, that is that my future husband will honor his priesthood. And I believe that a huge part of honoring your priesthood is honoring and respecting women and, um, making sure that they feel safe and they feel loved. And so having, having that line in my patriarchal blessing has not only been encouraging to let me know that someone is out there who, who will respect me in that way and who will love me in that way, but also just recognizing the love that Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother have for me and giving me that revelation. It was some, it, I got the blessing when I was 16. Um, but you know, it's something that that line didn't become so important to me until now in recognizing that there's someone out there that people do honor their priesthood and that someone will love me for all of me, my spirit, my body, my soul. And it's something that's been really beautiful to, to be able to read that and have it in my life. I love that. I want you to repeat something as best you can that you said earlier in the podcast. You talked about virginity as something that you can't, you know, you just talked about kind of the importance of looking at virtue versus virginity and virginity mm-hmm. is something you um, can't have taken away from you or just yeah. talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, of course. Um, so virginity is, I mean, I hate the word social contra- construct, but it's a social construct. Your body doesn't change because, um, you know, something has been inside of you or that you have been inside of something that doesn't change your, you anatomically. Virginity is something that you choose to give to someone. And it's something that, um, that no one can take from you because it's, I mean, it's simply, it's your choice. It's yours. You have it. And, um, when someone sexually assaults you, your virginity is not gone. Your virtue is not gone. You have not made a choice. And it is only through choice that you can give your virginity to someone else. You, when you've been sexually assaulted, are just as pure as the day that you were born. Um, 
you just have to recover from that trauma. I love that. And I'm trying to learn more about that. I posted on Instagram, virtue is a beautiful spiritual gift and should be what potential spouses are looking for Mm -hmm. and not a checklist requirement that can includes, which I like a consult social construct of virginity that may exclude some of heavenly father's finest children from consideration as your future spouse. Mm -hmm. And so I just, I love that. And I think somehow we got really caught up in that. And well, I and, remember dating divorced women mm-hmm. a couple days, de- and I recognize they've been sexually active. Yeah. And I just actually, it helped me to mature in my 20s because a couple of these women had you know, just s- such level of maturity mm-hmm. and such a level of thoughtfulness in their relationship. I didn't marry a divorced woman, but yeah. it helped me mature a little bit there. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, I, to exclude someone from from dating them simply because um, because they've been sexually assaulted and you no longer view them as a virgin, or even because they've been sexually active, is to potentially exclude the perfect person for I you. Agree. And to exclude someone based on that is to not hold a true belief of the power of the atonement in your heart. And so I think that if if you're excluding people because they've been sexually acted or because they've been sexually assaulted, then really that's, that's a you problem. That's a, you need to view the atonement differently and recognize the true power that it does have and that these people are clean and that they're pure um, through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Will you talk to your kids about your, about being a survivor of sexual assault? Absolutely. I don't see how I could avoid it. My, Why will you talk to them? Well, so one, I, I thought that's what you'd say. <laughs> yes, and you have a big smile on your face. Yes. Like, of course, I'm going to talk to them. Yeah, of course. Um, well, for one, my organization is not something that's going away. Um, I hope to either make it something that um, needs full time attention, um, whether that be from me or from someone I can pass the organization onto as I go into my law career, but. Um, I want it to be something that matters a lot to a lot of people and that it can help a lot of people. Um, and I'll always be really involved in that organization. And so it will be impossible for my kids not to know that I've been sexually assaulted because they'll have to know like why mommy is so passionate about this thing. But then additionally, um, it's not something to be ashamed of. I am so not ashamed of the fact that I've been sexually assaulted. I, it's not my fault. Why, why should I care that I've been sexually assaulted? Why should anyone care? It, it's not a choice that I made. It's not something that I could control and I didn't control it. And so I want my kids to know that it, that I've been sexually assaulted simply because it's a part of my life story. It's the same thing as I went to college in Tennessee, like great, interesting. I have also been sexually assaulted. Um, and it's something that I think will be really important for me as a teaching tool to teach them um, how to keep their partners safe and how to stay safe um, in a situation. And then additionally, um, if one of them had been sexually assaulted, I would kick myself if they felt like they were alone. Um, If I chose not to talk about my assault and then a child was assaulted and they failed to tell me because they felt like they were the only person it ever happened to, like what a shame because I've I've been through it and I'm okay and I want them to know that they can be too. And so I'd rather they just always know and removing that shame from it because if I hadn't felt ashamed 
maybe I would have said something to someone. Maybe I would have done something. Um, but, but I did feel ashamed and that shame can be taken away as we talk about it. You didn't hesitate when I asked you that question. And I think it just helps me to understand that there's no shame mm-hmm. and how, and your point about shame is not from God, it's from Satan. And yep. I just think, I think some of your greatest parenting paydays are going to be because you talk about it. Mm-hmm. And if so. I'm, and your kids may never be, hopefully, a hopefully survivor not, of no. sexual assault, but they may just get that I can talk to mom about stuff and uh-huh. I can talk to dad about stuff. If mom's willing to talk, it's like what my dad did for me when he, they took the whole family to therapy yeah. in some way. He de-shamed therapy. Mm-hmm. And so when I knew I needed therapy, I just went. And yeah. I think I told my parents I went. Yeah. And so I think some of your greatest paydays are because you're you're vulnerable mm-hmm. and you're real and you're authentic and you have no shame. And I just think it creates a, it it duplicates this the family structure you grew up in on trust. And uh-huh. maybe because you're open about this, it even allows some additional conversations to happen. I hope so. And I think your husband, the right guy, is going to love this about you. Yeah. He's going to look at who you are and he's going to mourn for the sexual abuse and he's going to get the trauma to some extent. Mm-hmm. And then maybe he's got trauma in another area where he can sort of relate. I don't yeah. know, but he, I just think he's going to love this part, you're, this, yeah. who you are and, and your ability to, he's just going to look at this as your ability to be a better wife, a better mother, um, running this nonprofit and just... I read this quote a lot on the podcast. You, all you listeners, knew it would eventually come, but it's, it's by Henry Norwin, a Catholic priest, and he wrote a minister's service, and that's who you are. Brittany will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he or she speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led out of a desert by someone who's never been there. And you know this desert. There's nothing growing there. And you didn't do anything wrong to be put in that desert. No. And it's taken a while to realize that. Yes. But you're healing so many people and helping so many people. And that's maybe some of your greatest paydays is you can go where with someone that no one's been able to go there with them before. Mm -hmm. And the healing. And I'm sure you've done that already hundreds of times. Yes, absolutely. It's something where... um, I have felt really honored in this role to be with people on this journey. And um, I think to to have the opportunity to see the love that Christ has for them and to feel a similar love, I think, has been an amazing opportunity that Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ have given me is to, to love these people and to recognize the, the amount that this work needs done. Since starting my organization, um, I've been in law school and it's been incredibly difficult to balance it time-wise, but something that I have felt the whole time is that God and Heavenly Mother and Jesus Christ are with me in this experience and they're truly consecrating my time and my efforts to help other people. And it's been a really humbling experience and one that has built my testimony in the Savior and His Atonement so, so much. And you're in tax lots, not like you're in... (laughs) You have all these different skill sets. <laughs> Anything else you want to share with our listeners, Brittany? I would just love to share to anyone who's been sexually assaulted um, that you are so loved and um, just that I hope you understand 
how much God loves you, how much your heavenly mother loves you and how much Jesus Christ loves you. And, um, that I hope in your healing journey, you're able to learn to love yourself and to feel that love. Thank you. I'm going to just in closing, read back a quote you gave earlier in the podcast. If I got it right, <laughs> if you are a survivor of sexual assault, you are just as pure as you were the day you were born. Um, so that's from Brittany Herman, um, who has lots of, you know, I encourage everybody to check out our organization and, and, um, follow her healing words. So Brittany Herman, you're one of our heroes for bravely coming on the podcast and sharing your journey. And it's, these are the kind of vulnerable, honest stories that give hope and healing to others. So thank you so much for your thank courage you for having me. from all of our listeners. I think about 10,000 people listen to this episode, Brittany. So there'll be a lot of people whose lives are helped by you. Um, thank you, our listeners for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn and Love hosted by Richard Osler. Thank you.